we decided that we were going to do this series, Triune Strength, I kind of had this picture in my head of the church suffering, laying down on a bed, tired, weary, and God placing His Word under our heads like a pillow to, to relieve us. And that's really what I've wanted out of this series. I hope that's happened. I hope that the Word of the Lord has been like a pillow to you. It has been a comfort to you. As we have seen the Father's comfort, how in our suffering He transforms us and He turns us into comforters. We've looked at the Son's example, which certainly gives us our example on how we should be pressing on and enduring as we run our race. And this morning, we are going to turn our attention to the Spirit. And I hope that what we see in Romans 8, you can turn there if you have your Bible, I hope what we see in Romans 8 will help us though we are weak in the world. And that is the reality, that you and I are weak in the world. I don't mean we are weak in the sense that we are helpless or that we are hopeless. That can never be because of who we are in Christ. When I say that we are weak in the world, what I mean is that the cares of this world and the brokenness of our bodies, the heartbreak caused by people that we love, the stresses, it all adds, us, uh, adds up to, to us feeling pretty wobbly at times, pretty weary at times, maybe even flat on our backs. And on those days when you're flat on your back and you're staring up at the ceiling and whatever you're encountering is so immense that you feel paralyzed by it. You feel like, I cannot bear up under the weight of this. And you don't even know what to pray. What do you do on those days? Where do you turn? Well, here in Romans 8, we find that we need to turn to God and we find that God has turned toward us. Romans 8 is filled with all sorts of wonderful promises regarding how the Father and the Son and the Spirit pour out love and blessings on us. Some people have called this the pinnacle of Scripture. It's a beautiful chapter of the Bible, and it is particularly concerned with the blessings of the Holy Spirit on your life. So just in Romans 8, I just want to walk us down uh, from the start all the way down to where we're going to pick it up this morning. Just... What we see in terms of the Holy Spirit, we see that believers in Jesus are set free from the law of sin and death by the Spirit of life in chapter 8, verse 2. In 8, 5, we see believers walk according to the Spirit by setting their minds on the things of the Spirit. And one verse later, you see that Christians have life and peace when their mind is set on the Spirit. In Romans 8, 9, the Spirit dwells in believers In 8.10, the righteousness that Christ provides for us opens the way for the Spirit's work in our lives. One verse later in 8.11, it says, The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you, fighting sin in you and for you. In Romans 8.13, it is by the Spirit that we as Christians put to death the deeds of the body. Romans 8.14, if you are a son of God, you are destined to receive your heavenly reward from him and you are led by the Spirit along the way. In 8.15, you have the spirit of adoption so that you will not fall back into slavery so that you would know God as Father and cry to him. The Spirit himself bears witness to you being a child of God in Romans 8.16. And then in Romans 8.23, it says that the Spirit lets us taste the first fruits of salvation. And then this morning we come to Romans 
8 verses 26 and 27 where we find that the Spirit is helping us along in our prayer lives, that He is interceding for us when we cannot speak, that He is perfecting what is imperfect in our prayer lives, that He is groaning with us, and that He is ministering to us. And so I hope that we'll be strengthened by this work of the Spirit that we see in our uh, lives that is promised to us. So Romans 8 starting in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand these two verses this morning, and uh, though there are just two of them, I think they have such a rich application uh, just for the way that we live as Christians. And so I, uh, I pray, God, that the word would be clear so that tomorrow or even today, even as we sit down to have lunch and we pray over our meals, that we would feel more confident in our prayer lives, Lord. So pray that you would speak and I pray that you would work and I pray that you would use me and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we see in these verses that we need to linger over is this idea that the Spirit of the living God is helping us in our weakness. We know that the comfort of the Father turns us into comforters. We have seen the example of the Son spurring us on to endure like Him, to cast off every sin so that we can run the race that has been set before us. But now we have the third person of the Trinity, and He is not uh, just dwelling in us, but we see in verse 26 that He is actually bearing the weight of our hardship. Everything in verses 18 through 30 is really one thought. It is a section in which Paul is explaining that the present sufferings of the world that you live in, the world that, that uh, we live in in weakness at times, right? It's going to be replaced with a future glory where we will not be living in weakness. And we are waiting on that glory. And as we wait, God is conforming us to the image of His Son, and He is even now allowing us to taste the first fruits of salvation. So in verse 23, Paul says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. When Paul says the Spirit is helping us in our weakness, he is saying that the Spirit's divine heavenly assistance to us is part of the first fruits. Okay, the first fruits he's talking about in verse 23, part of that is that the Spirit is helping you in your weakness. When we get to heaven, we are going to be able to live in our resurrected bodies without sin, without the threat of death. That's what life's going to look like on the new earth. We will live our entire lives in perfect dependence upon God. But right now, he gives you a taste of that by strengthening you for the trials of the present age, by teaching you to live on His life in the here and now, by exposing you to the joy of depending on His daily provision, by having the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. The idea that the Spirit helps us and, 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 and that the Spirit is carrying weight with us, uh, we, we see that here. Uh, verse in verse 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That Greek word for help is the same Greek word from Luke 10.40, which is the story of Martha and Mary. 
But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him, talking about Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me, to help me. It's the same Greek word. Martha was frustrated because the task of service was left only to her. So she wants Mary to come and to take her hand and to put it on the plow, right? To, to bear up under the weight of the service, to take on some of that weight. The fact that the same word is being used here in Romans 8.26 tells us that the Spirit is assisting us. That the Spirit is helping us. That the Spirit is putting His hand to the plow with us in the task of suffering. So as your body is longing for ultimate redemption and, ultimately, uh, and, and, and to ultimately experience all of your inheritance, right? To be a co-heir with Christ on the new earth, living in the presence of God without sin. As you wait for that and as you long for that, the Spirit of God is there to bear up with you under the weight of living in this world. So teaching point number one, the Holy Spirit bears burdens with God's children. The Holy Spirit bears burdens with God's children. I remember when I got to seminary, my roommate and I, we were like, we had these two ideas that were very much connected. We were like, we're going to get fit and we're going to find wives, all right? So we came there and we were like, we had free access to the gym at Liberty because we were seminary students. So we're like, we're going to go to the gym and we're going to find wives. We both found wives, neither of them lived in Lynchburg, and our fitness is not what attracted these women, okay? So... Uh, we did succeed on the wife finding, not so much on the fitness, but I remember one particular evening, we were watching Monday Night Football, and I hadn't gotten my workout in, and we were, we were vigilant, so I was like, I'm going to do this workout, even though we're not at the gym, do it here at the apartment. So I'm working out, and I was doing some push-ups, which I'm not very good at, and my roommate, Kenny, was sitting there, and he's like, you need to straighten your back out a little bit. He's like, uh, your, your hands are too far forward, pull them back. And I noticed as he was talking to me, he was kind of talking, kind of muffled, you know. I look up, and this man is dipping Oreos in milk, stuffing them in his mouth as he is criticizing my push-up form. And without me having to say a word, we both busted out laughing at just how comical the situation is, okay? The Holy Spirit is not like this. He is not. He does not sit there coldly coaching you and suggesting advice while you suffer through the pain of life. No. He's not like some sort of distant online life coach. He is not like the football fan who shouts armchair advice at the coach from the TV uh, or at the TV from the comfort of his own home. He, he's not even like the counselor you see once a week who gives you great advice and great wisdom but can't go to work with you. He's better than all of that. He is in the thick of our lives with us. He is involving himself. He walks into the labor and the work of our lives, into the race that we run, and he says, let me help you with this. A.T. Robertson picks up on this language in Romans 8, and he says the Greek indicates that the Spirit is actively carrying the weight of our lives with us. He says the Holy Spirit lays hold of our weaknesses along with us and carries his part of the burden facing us as if two men were carrying a log each at one end. If you've ever helped somebody move, you know exactly what this scene is, right? Somebody gets on one end of the couch, somebody gets on the other, one, two, three, and we lift together. And the Holy Spirit's doing that with you. He is lifting with you as you struggle in weakness in this world. This word weakness, 
we need to understand it so we know exactly what the Holy Spirit is helping us with. It's connected to the groaning that you see in verses 20 through 23. In verses 20 and 21, Paul explains exactly what happened to creation when sin came into the world. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When sin came into the world, the earth went from being paradise to being crippled. The animal world went from tranquility to violence. Just this morning, I was showing one of our members as I was walking in here a picture of a deer that got in a fight with another deer, and obviously he had won because he was walking around with that deer's head on his head, all right? Like the antlers were hooked and the skull was attached to his skull and he was walking around with it on there, all right? The animal world has been thrust from tranquility into that. The created harmony of God's design was thrust into chaos and destruction. Sin and death opened the door to floods and fires and earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and tidal waves. And so Paul says to this in Romans 8.22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation is crying out for redemption, crying out for restoration, for the new earth like a woman in labor. But as you keep reading, you find out that as creation groans, believers groan right along with it. We eagerly are awaiting our adoption, and inwardly, Paul says in verse 23, that we groan. Creation wants full redemption to come. We want full redemption to come. We've tasted the first fruits of the Spirit, the first fruits of salvation, which includes the help of the Spirit in our weakness. And as we suffer in these perishing bodies, we are groaning for the imperishable to replace it. And so we experience weakness as we groan. It's the physical, it's the emotional, it's the spiritual ailments that plague us in this world that is not our home. It is the days where you are hurting, it is the days where you are crying, and it's the days where you feel like nobody understands you and you feel totally alone. And on those days, the Spirit of God is there saying, I know that you are groaning for the Son to return. In the meantime, let me help you with the weakness that you have. In the days where we feel like our prayers have gone cold, He's there to help. In fact, that's the weakness Paul is most concerned about in this verse. For we do not know what to pray as we ought. That's part of the weakness of living in this world. That there are times where we don't know what to say to God. We don't know what to pray to God because the problem's too big. The pain is too deep. And on those days, the Spirit of God is there saying, I know you're groaning for the Son to return. And in the meantime, let me help you with the weakness that you have and let me tend to your prayers. We could say a host of things about how the Spirit ministers to our lives as believers. He convicts us of sin, reminds us of sin's poison and danger and how it is wrong. He urges us to agree with God about the nature of sin and and He urges us toward repentance. He helps us understand the Bible. He glorifies Jesus so that we would see the beauty of Christ. He binds our conscience so that we'll have wisdom in those areas where maybe the Bible isn't um, overtly giving us a thou shalt or a thou shalt not and we have to exercise wisdom in areas of Christian liberty. The Spirit is there to help us with that. But in this passage, Paul is concerned with one particular ministry of the Spirit and it corresponds with our prayer problem. The Spirit helps us 
with interceding when, when we do not have the words to say. He intercedes with groanings when our words are failing. So, second teaching point this morning, the Holy Spirit protects and perfects the prayers of God's children. The Holy Spirit protects and He perfects the prayers of God's children. First of all, let's just agree with Paul and his diagnosis of the weakness of our prayer lives. We are too confused, we are too sad, we are too inconsolable, we are too angry. These things get in the way. Sin, pain, suffering, hardship, whatever it may be, they have a way of rendering us speechless before God. And we have this ball of emotions, and we just don't even know where to begin, how how to start to parse through this and talk to God about this. In heaven, we are going to continue to communicate with God. I hope you know that, right? You're not going to get on the new earth and be like, well, I don't talk to him anymore. No, you are going to continue to talk to him. You will talk to him all the time, and sin won't be in the way. He will be our God, and we will be his people. And that's the way it's been from the very start in Genesis. That's what he wanted. He wanted Adam and Eve to be his people and for him to be their God. And part of that is that he communicated with them, right? He talked to them. They heard from him. But when sin entered into the world, that perfect relationship, that communication that Adam and Eve enjoyed with God, it was interrupted, it was broken, and so they hide from him. Try to cover themselves up with fig leaves. And ever since, the human ability to pray has been crippled. The human ability to communicate with God has been injured, shattered, destroyed. People are born with no guarantee that God will hear their prayers because they are cut off from Him. But once we turn from sin, once we repent and we put our faith in Jesus, His blood opens the way for us to have full access to God in prayer. But while that's true, we as Christians are still being sanctified. So I've got full access, but my accessibility can get hampered by my flesh. The problem's not on God's end in prayer, okay? He's done everything that He needed to do in order to open the way for you to communicate with Him. The problem is on our end. And so, because of that, sometimes when I go to pray, my prayers are errant. They're wrong. They're flat out wrong. Or they're inefficient. They just don't get the job done. Errant prayers would be the ones I offer up to God thinking, I know what I need. I know what I want. But in truth, I'm asking for things that would not be good for my life. As the highly respected and vaunted theologian Garth Brooks would say, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Martin Luther agrees. He argued that God does not often answer prayers um, so that he can destroy our pride, so that he can lay waste to our earthly desires before he blesses us with what we really need to glorify him. Hence, when we ask anything of God and he begins to hear us, he so often goes counter to our petitions that we imagine he is more angry with us now than before we prayed and that he intends not to grant us our requests at all. He's saying, sometimes I pray to God and he answers so completely the opposite to what I asked for that I think he's still angry with me. He does not love me in Christ. 
But Luther knows better. He says all this God does because it is his way first to destroy and annihilate what is in us, our own wisdom and will, before he gives us his gifts. Praise God that as I am in pain, as I offer up desperate requests that would not be good for me to have because I don't know what to pray for as I ought, his spirit steps in and protects me from errant prayers that I might offer up. When I think of errant prayers, I think of Elijah under the broom tree in 1 Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Man, Elijah had just seen all of those prophets get mowed down by the the power of God's divine justice. He must have been walking on air, must have thought, this is great. The enemy has been defeated, and all of a sudden, here comes Jezebel saying, oh, uh, I'm going to kill you. I will make sure that you get killed. And so he immediately goes from that victory right back down into sorrow, says that he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he went himself a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. That's an errant prayer. It's not what God wanted for his life. It was not time for Elijah to die. In fact, Elijah wasn't even going to die the way that most people die. Right? He was just going to be taken up. God had things for him to do. God is going to provide for him uh, a baked cake, and he's going to strengthen him. And there's still more work for the prophet to do, including the discipling of his uh, successor, Elisha. So Elijah is asking God for death, even though there is more in God's will for Elijah to do with his life. It's an errant prayer. It's not in line with God's wise plan for his own glory. And when we do not know what to pray for as we ought, when we are in the place that Elijah's in as he comes to that broom tree, sometimes we offer up errant prayers. And in desperation, we ask God for things that we should not have, maybe even the end of our very lives. And it is the Spirit there once again to intercede for us, to go to the Father for us. The errant prayers aren't the only problem. We also have inefficient prayers. These are the prayers where we're so flustered by what's happening, we never even really get to asking God for what we need. These are the prayers when the news has so devastated us that we can't even get the words out. Deep in our soul, maybe we know what we need, but we're bleeding too much to voice it. These are the prayers that feel like they just bounce off the ceiling and come back down to the floor because the events of our lives have worn us down to the point where we feel spiritually dry and we are in need of refreshing. And just as the Spirit intercedes when our prayers err from God's good and perfect will, the Spirit intercedes when our prayers are simply not efficient. Where we are inefficient in our weakness, He is perfect. And He protects us from the errant prayer and He perfects the inefficient prayer. And Paul says this intercession comes in the form of the Spirit's groanings that are too deep for words. This is the third groaning we've seen in Romans 8. In verse 22, creation is groaning. In verse 23, we are groaning. And now in verse 26, you have the Spirit there groaning with us. Kent Hughes says this means that we have two persons of the Godhead standing in the gap for us. How marvelous this all is, he says. 
We have two intercessors, one in heaven, our Lord Jesus who intercedes for our sins, and one in our hearts, the Holy Spirit himself. How greatly we are loved. Scottish hymn writer James Montgomery penned something very similar with the sixth verse of his hymn on prayer. He said, Nor prayer is made on earth alone. The Holy Spirit pleads, and Jesus on the eternal throne for sinners intercedes. We can be absolutely sure this morning that our groaning intercessor who dwells in us is getting the job done when it comes to taking our prayers to the Father. And interestingly enough, it's not so much the nature and the work of the Spirit that leads Paul to that conclusion, but it's the nature of the Father. Do you see that there in verse 27? And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Father searches every heart. There are no secrets with Him. He knows all. In 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9, it says, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve Him with a whole heart and a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Hebrews 4, verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. And the Father also knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Father and the Spirit are one. As Athanasius teaches us in his creed, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. There are not three gods, there is one God. So God has eternally existed as three persons, but those three persons of the Godhead have essential and perfect unity as one God. Therefore, the Father knows the mind of the Spirit. And it is this eternal unity that the Father has with the Spirit that enables the Spirit to completely and totally protect and perfect our prayers as the intercessor in our hearts. There is no disconnect between the Spirit of the living God who dwells in you and the Father who sits on the throne. Let's just review what we've seen thus far. The Spirit bears burdens with us as the children of God. The Spirit protects and perfects our prayers as God's children. And now finally, teaching point number three this morning. The Holy Spirit's ministry compels persistent prayer from God's children. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is the why. This is the practical outworking of Romans 8, 26 and 27. If, if everything that is said in these two verses is true, if, if the Spirit is helping us in our weakness, and, and when we don't know what to pray, He is there interceding for us with groanings too deep for words, and we can be confident that this is happening because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, and that the Father knows what is in the mind of the Spirit. If all that's untrue, then why in the world would we not be praying often? Praying consistently, praying persistently, praying passionately, praying expectantly, praying with conviction. Why? Why do we spend more time talking to people on Facebook? Why do we spend more time sending out tweets that no one's ever going to read? Why do we spend more time commenting on Instagram? Why do we spend more time texting? Why do we spend more time messaging on Facebook Messenger? Why do we spend more time scrolling on our phones and reading the news and listening to Tucker Carlson and whoever else than praying? If all these things are true, why are we so neglectful in conversation with God? 
Jesus doesn't want us to be this way. He died so that you would not only have full access, but that you would use that full access to be coming to God and praying all the time, persistently and consistently. With no fear that your errant and inefficient prayers are going to cause God to turn His face away from you because the Spirit is interceding. We know Jesus wants us to be praying because He taught us this in Luke 18 with a parable. And He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to Him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The point of his parable is that if this earthly judge who is irreverent and disrespectful and doesn't care a lick about this widow and really just wants her to go away, if he's going to grant the request just to get her out of his sight, how much more will God grant the request of his children that he knows and loves? This is a call to persistence. Leon Morris commenting on that parable says, the lesson is clear. We must not play at prayer, but show persistence if we do not receive the answer immediately. It is not that God is unwilling and must be pressed into answering. The whole context makes it clear that He is eager to give. But if we do not want what we are asking for enough to be persistent, we do not want it very much. It is not such tepid prayer that is answered. In Romans 8.27, Paul says, The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is one among many reasons as to why you should pray every day and you should pray persistently because the Spirit is, inter- uh, is interceding for you and as God, He does it according to the perfect will of God because God cannot go against Himself. So what this means is that the Spirit is the best prayer partner that you could ever have and you have Him. Why are we so slow to pray? We should be eager to talk to God and that eagerness should show itself in persistent prayer. Which is why Paul says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean you retreat from the world and you just spend every waking moment in prayer and you never stop to do anything else. It can't mean that, right? You can never fulfill the Great Commission. You wouldn't be able to just come to church and listen to a sermon. So obviously it's not what Paul's saying. He's talking about a habit. He is talking about a life where you are praying around the clock because it is your routine and it is woven into your daily activity. It is as much a part of your day as breathing, as walking, as standing, as drinking water, as sitting down. It is second nature to you to talk to God. I will confess to you that Up until the last two years, I have constantly struggled in my own prayer life. I have constantly been dissatisfied in my own prayer life. What has worked for me is the introduction of written prayers into my prayer life. And I know that for some of you, you're like, not me, man. Don't do that. That's not what I want. Okay, I get that. may not be for you. Some people think it's cold. It's indifferent. But when I read those prayers to God from my heart, 
it primes the pump and it spurs me on to more spontaneous prayer throughout my day. So if I begin my day with a written prayer, what I find is that throughout my day, I am continuing to talk to God because it has sparked my heart to the reality of the situation. Hey, you are not just living in a world, walking around, dealing with the physical realities. That you are a Christian and that you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you and you recognize that behind the physical realities there are spiritual realities and that there is a spiritual battle in the world and that there are lost people and there are saved people and that there is God and there is Satan and Satan does not want me to worship God. Right? To, to be aware of all of that and to be praying about that because I started my day with this written prayer that reminded me that's the world you live in. It's not just what you see. And so throughout my day I find myself praying the written prayers are like a kindling that catches fire and it burns until I come home and I open the prayer book and I throw some more wood on that fire. If you want to pray more persistently and you feel like for years I have tried and I've struggled and you don't know where to start, get yourself a prayer book. We have one today. It costs $12. We'll give it to you for free if you don't have $12. If you don't like that one, you will not offend us. There are many, many, many prayer books out there. We would love to make a recommendation. Come talk to me. But what this text does for me is let me know that when I go to bed at the end of a hard day of laboring for Christ, I don't have to go to bed wondering if my prayers were too weak or too tired or too written or too all over the place for God to hear them. I can pray persistently knowing that through my pain and through my hardship, the Spirit of the living God is interceding. He is making groanings for me to the Father. And since the Father and the Spirit are one, I know that my feeble, suffering prayers are protected and perfected by the intercession of the Spirit, and God hears my deepest feelings and requests. And glory be to God, He lets us taste that now. Just a little preview of the perfect that is to come. Before I close, I want to point out one more thing about 1 Thessalonians 5 as it relates to Romans 8. Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. You want to memorize two Bible verses today? I got five words for you. Rejoice always, you just memorize one. Pray without ceasing, there's the other. All right? And boy, is this a, a, a good couple of Bible verses to store up in your heart. Do you see there that if you don't do the praying without ceasing, you're not going to get the rejoicing? They come together. The people I know who are the most joyful people, it's not people where everything goes right in their life. Some of the most joyful people I know, it just seems like God puts hurdle after hurdle and, and, and hardship after hardship in front of them for His glory. The most joyful people I know are people who pray. It's the people who pray. When I call Jane Hudgens on the phone, I know that I'm going to get a joyful answer on the other end because I'm getting a prayerful woman on the other end. And I could say that about many men and women in this church. The people who rejoice are the people who pray. Persistently offer up prayers. Trust the Spirit's intercession and the Father's goodness to hear them. And you will find that in the most horrific physical and emotional pain, ultimately, you are able to have joy. The world does not live that way. But by the power of the Spirit and His work in your prayer life, you can. In 2009, there was a Dutch artist who set up a local telephone number in the Netherlands. And he urged people to call and to leave a message for God. His name was Johan Vanderdong. 
And he set up a phone number with a voicemail to give people this opportunity to just pause from their lives and contemplate life. And so the callers would use this number and they would call up and they would hear this message, which I find to be pretty blasphemous. Hi, you were speaking to God. I'm not in right now, so leave a message after the beep. And Vanderdong did this because he said that, like praying, leaving a voicemail message is a way to organize your thoughts. It is a perfect combination for some contemplation. I am thankful that prayer is not leaving messages for God. I don't leave God voicemails. He's always there to receive what I have to say to him. And I don't have to worry about the reception because I know that he will hear my prayers and he will not smite me because Jesus' intercession has given me the access. And I can have confidence that the prayers I offer up to God from the pit of suffering will be protected and perfected by His groaning because of the intercession of the Spirit. Therefore, I pray without ceasing, and I can rejoice always. No voicemails, no AI, no direct messages, right? Just look to the God of comfort, who you know through the enduring Son, and pray rejoicing that the Spirit is interceding and tending to your prayer life. Whatever you were going through, you were not alone. The triune God is with you. He longs to comfort you. He longs to lead you. He longs to, to hear from you. Trust in no one but Him for the peace that you need in the midst of your suffering. And give no one but Him the glory when He gives you that peace. And the last thing I want to say to you before we close up is that this life is a vapor. Whatever it is that you're going through now, the Bible calls it a mist. It will come to an end. It will not last forever. But the relationship that we have with God the Father through Jesus, which we have come to understand and believe in because the Spirit has revealed it to us, it's not going anywhere. He is yours for eternity in Christ, and you are His. Hold on to that and be strengthened by our triune God. Father God, we thank you for the love that you have for us and the comfort that you give us. We thank you for your son's example, which has not just been an example, but it is our salvation. It is our atonement. It is our hope. And then we thank you, Father, for the Spirit who tends to our prayer lives like a garden, who weeds out the inefficiency and weeds out the errancy. And Lord, it grows up uh, our prayers with his intercession and brings them in line with the will of God. I thank you for this, Lord. I thank you for this. I thank you that I can pray persistently and consistently and confidently knowing this. And I pray that all of this, God, everything that we've talked about over the last three weeks would leave us um, just more sure of the fact that you, you care for us and that we can cast our cares upon you because you care for us than, we, than, than we've ever been sure before. And I pray we would do that, and that we would eradicate the idols from our lives and all the things we depend on that are not you, and we would depend on you and you alone, and that we would glorify you, God, as we love you, and, uh, and we show that love to the people around us, Lord. Help us to pass the comfort on now that you've given it to us in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.